Father, we know that you have all insights and wisdom, and you have provided these insights, these sayings, these teachings, these directions through your apostles who gave us your word and through the Old Testament prophets and kings. We would ask, Lord, that you would bring to us insight and wisdom for the days in which we live are evil and wickedness is growing and men and women are calling good evil and evil good. So help us, Lord, to live under our convictions, not just preferences. And with your help, Lord, we'll do it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, verse 4, I went over this. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And I got into a little bit of theology. This is a deep well when it comes to this subject. And there's an attempt to reconcile the sovereignty of God with human responsibility. And I think oftentimes we get that wrong instead of being just comfortable with the seeming contradiction which is there. And will God ever turn away someone who wishes to be saved? We know that Romans 10.13 says, No, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And I try to frame this argument for you. And, and one side of the argument is, we have been chosen or picked out, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and John 15. We have been predestined, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. We were elected, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And the times and places that we exist, we live, have been chosen for us according to Acts 17. And this is the sovereignty of God. He has determined all these things. But Scripture also says, and I told you to pay attention to the pronouns, whoever, and you, and the adjective yours, or your. And it says in Scripture, Romans 10, 9 and 10, that you must confess and you must believe, and by that you are justified. It also says that you must become like a little child in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's a responsibility of ours to do that. We must repent, according to Luke chapter 13. And we must believe, according to John 3:16. And God doesn't want anybody to perish, according to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And I got into some theological terms, the compatibilism, synergism, and motorism. Compatibilism is a person who cannot choose contrary to the fallen nature's desires. In other words, if we're fallen, we cannot choose to go with God or believe in God because God determined it ahead of time. We will never get there. That's one of the beliefs that is out there. The other libertarian free will, which I didn't mention last week, means we can resist the ability to choose contrary to the fallen nature and its desires, or we retain the ability to choose. So there's both sides. One, you can't resist the fallen nature and its choices. The other one is you can resist the fallen nature and its choices. You can choose God. On the other hand, you can't choose God because Scripture says God chose you, you didn't choose God. And th that's the debate that goes back and forth. Well, which one is true? And a question <clears throat> posed to anyone looking at this issue, why would God send anyone to hell if he preordains that they cannot choose to be saved? Another way of saying this is if there's a person who exists and you go up and you give the gospel to them, there's no way that they can receive the gospel. They can receive salvation. They will not choose it because God predetermined that they would not. No matter how many times they're given the gospel, they will not. Now, I reject this, but... When this question is posed to even pastors, I heard pastors in uh, conferences that I watch online, they will say, well, how do you reconcile this? And they say, we can't. Even though God is merciful, God is loving, God is just, we can't reconcile it. It's a mystery. And I don't think God provides for us a mystery like that. I think he gives us clarity from Scripture that we can be saved. And what it boils down to for a person who is not saved, the resolution to be saved comes down to this. Are they not saved because they cannot be saved? Or are they not saved because they will not be saved? And, of course, Scripture tells us, John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40, <clears throat> we 
we know that Jesus healed on the Sabbath and he even called God his own father, making himself equal with God. And when the Jews heard about this, they wanted to kill him. All the more harder they were trying to kill him because of this. And his response here in verse 39 was, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And it says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So scripture does teach that we refuse the grace of God. But the other side would say, no, you can't refuse the grace of God. You are embedded with this program. You will choose God and you cannot resist the grace of God. Well, it seems to be the opposite case from the plain reading of scripture. Now, I'll leave you with this to decide for yourselves. But for me, the verse unequivocally says that we refuse or we are unwilling when we don't get saved, we just don't want to. And when we give the gospel, you know, whenever you've gone out witnessing, when I've gone out witnessing, there are people who just say no. And then there are others who want to know more and then others who will pray to receive the gift of salvation. Jesus doesn't say, yet I will refuse to let you come to me to have eternal life. He says, you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. Now, for me, it comes down really to the mercy of God through this line of thinking. God is just. He will always judge sin. No matter what else takes place, there is no exception. And it is absolute. And he judges every single sin because he's perfect. And God is loving. He is always loving, even to the worst of sinners, and love is absolute. But that must be coupled with justice. He doesn't let sin go away because he's absolutely just, but he loves unconditionally. <clears throat> That's why he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He, he loves everyone. He provides food for everyone. Now, the reason that we don't have food in some countries and people are starving, I believe it's because of us. There's enough food. We produce enough food in the United States to feed the entire world. It has been said when I was growing up, we produce enough food in just the state of California where we could feed the entire world. You couple with that a couple other states and a couple other countries, we could easily feed the entire world. And so God is also kind. He is always kind to everyone, even to the sinner. As I just said, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God is just. He is loving. He is kind and God is merciful. Now, God is always merciful. But remember, he's just. You have to hold both. You can't just grab one. It's like they say, if you don't recognize the new gender dysmorphia that is out there, that you're being unloving. No, that is not being unloving. As a matter of fact, that's being wise. You you don't call a watermelon a tomato, that type of thing. You're just being practical this is what things are language has words that mean things and and so god is always merciful always willing to extend mercy and from my perspective i would say he cannot not extend mercy a theological teacher that i had before said he was always free to extend mercy and he will extend mercy and there's a rhetorical set of questions given in psalm 77 verse 7 through 9 says Will the Lord reject forever? This is a rhetorical question. What would the answer be? No. How about this one? Will he never show his favor again? Rhetorical question. The answer is no. It's not going to happen that way. How about has his unfailing love vanished forever? The answer is no. I'm beginning to hear it. That's right. Has God forgotten to be merciful? No, it's a rhetorical question. That's what's delivered here in the psalm. It says, has he in anger withheld his compassion? The answer is no. All these things are no. So God is always going to be merciful. And he's merciful to the just and the unjust. Now, there this this argument that goes back and forth. It reaches much farther than just the mercy and how God acts towards us. There are those who believe that the misadventures of the Israelites, the successes, the failures, even the sins were all predetermined. This would carry into our day and age. Whatever sin you have committed, God predetermined that you would sin that sin and he's going to get glory from it. 
I reject that. I don't think that that is in Scripture. Even Satan's fall, his sin was predetermined. God set him up so that he would fall, predetermined that he would fall, that sin would come into the world so God would be glorified. I can't abide by that notion. According to some, if this teaching is rejected, it's the denial of the sovereignty of God. God being over everything, in control of everything. I believe he is in control of everything. But I believe that when we sin, we choose to sin and we're held accountable for that. And if God held us accountable when he made us sin, then he wouldn't be just. And that's, again, another mystery. Why does God do that? Well, we don't know why he does that, those who would hold that point of view. And again, I reject that. Now, how does this affect us, this belief system? You know, whether you are chosen or whether you choose or a combination of the two, it doesn't affect us. We think it might in some areas, but as far as our view on election and predestination and foreknowledge, it does not change our status as disciples of Jesus. That's why this would be called an intramural debate or an in-house debate. Those people who are Christians, it doesn't matter to us. We just know that we are saved. Now, when we go on with this, for me personally, it's simply... I confess Christ. I believe that he is Lord. I believe that he is Savior. I've asked him to save me. I've tried to repent of my sin in action, but I certainly have changed, repented in my thought. That is turned towards Christ where before I was hostile to Christ. And, of course, Scripture says no other name under heaven is given to man by which we must be saved, and that is Acts chapter 4, verse 12. But as I started out with, this is a deep theological hole and uh, do you wish Jesus to save you from your sins? Well, all you have to do is ask. That, that's just it from our perspective. Now, it can affect how we look upon others in the world who do not possess the gift of salvation. <clears throat> if you believe that God determined everybody who is going to be saved <clears throat> to be saved and everybody who's going to be damned is going to be damned, nothing you can do to change it. It, it makes you ask the question, why evangelize? It doesn't matter if you evangelize because they're still going to be saved whether you do it or God reaches them in some other fashion. Now, if it's just getting the word out, that's what we're supposed to do. I, I understand that. But you're going to be a, a little reticent or reluctant to go out and give the gospel to somebody who can't be saved. It's like you're spinning your wheels all the time. And what, is that going to be used as a witness against them when they don't get saved? Well, I think in some degree it will. But to give the gospel to somebody who can't be saved, it's like, why are you wasting your time? What does it matter if I do anything at all in this life? This is what is known as fatalism. It doesn't matter what you do because God has already determined the outcome. And I, I see how people can arrive at that But the free will aspect of Scripture, it is not something that is voided out because Scripture teaches we are predestined, we are pre-chosen. He determines where we live. He determines who we marry. He determines who is going to be born. I get all of that. I understand that. How those two work together, for me, that is simply, it's just a mystery. Now, should we look deeper into these things as believers? Do we simply say, you know... It's just too much for me. I don't care. I just know that I'm saved and I'll talk to somebody else. I don't think we get off the hook so easy. You know, there's a song that we used to sing years ago. It says, I will delight the law of the Lord. I will meditate day and night just like a tree planted. And it goes on to talk about how we should meditate on God's word. And that is taken from Psalm Chapter 1, verse 2, it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so we used to sing that all the time. Proverbs 25, verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Now you might say, but I'm not a king. Oh, you're royalty. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but you're married to Jesus Christ. You're betrothed right now, and the marriage supper of the Lamb will take place in the future. But we are royalty. We belong to the king You know, when somebody, Kate Middleton, when she married her husband, he's going to be king someday, Prince William. 
He's going to be king, if, depending on if the queen ever dies or not. You know, she just keeps on going like the ever-ready bunny. And his father is in line, but he's the next one in line. Well, his wife, Kate Middleton, becomes queen when that happens by marriage. And so we are royalty in the eyes of God. And we're just waiting for that time for the glorification of the saints to take place when we're with Jesus Christ and we're all together. So... It also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. We have the Holy Spirit of God living in us, and He wants us to learn more about God, and so we need to dive into these things. Now, will we always get answers? The answer is no. We won't always get answers, but He wants us to struggle with what's going on. He wants us to know who He is. Do you know who God is? I, I was listening to a debate yesterday, it was hard to listen to. I, I don't know why, but it was with uh, a Mormon, uh, a Mormon who was a scholar, a couple of them, and also scholars in the Reformed tradition of the church. And even the Mormons recognized the futility of the Reformed theology, and they started to go off in that direction in the debate. And it is not something that is agreeable. And they mentioned Anne Frank. And the Mormon was saying, oh, Anne Frank, let's see, you're destined to suffer and die in the concentration camps, and you're going to have a terrible life, and when you get to heaven, I'm going to get to the judgment seat, God is going to say to her, now you go to hell. And, and you could see how the Mormons would just say, that's a ridiculous form of theology that you guys are holding to. But it, it was just going back and forth on what to believe, what not to believe. But, but they were endeavoring to debate each other on the veracity of Scripture. Is there new revelation that comes? And we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to be able to stand up, pull out the sword of the Spirit, and defend what Scripture has to say. And we're to be engaged in that. And that's a part of becoming disciples. Now, if you're studying, if you're reading things... Uh, on God, if you're reading the Bible, if you're trying to gain understanding, that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And when does it end? Do you ever arrive? You never arrive. It is always something that is to be uh, pressed upon us that we just keep on going forward. How deep is God's word? How deep is the understanding in God's word? You cannot get to the bottom. You just keep digging and go as deep as you possibly can for as long as you live. So going on here, back in verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, verse 5, because our gospel came to you not simply with the words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. So he separates those three out. There's another triad there, just like we had the faith, hope, and love. You have power, Holy Spirit, and deep conviction, those things. But all of that comes through the vehicle of words. Now, words are powerful, the things that we say have an effect on individuals. All you have to do is look through history, the great orders in history. Two weeks ago, I think it was, Zelensky over in Ukraine, he gave a speech. And the speech was, we shall go on to the end, we shall fight. Oh, he, he didn't use this particular part, but he, he uses the latter part in it. It says, we shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. And this is what Zelensky said. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the land grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Now, I think you know who said that. That was Churchill. When Churchill said that, that motivated the English people to continue on in the war, even though they were being wiped out. And I think it's God's divine hand that prevented that from happening. Now, with Zelensky, we still don't know if he's good or bad, but he is still the epitome of strength and leadership and endurance. That much I give him, but we still know that he's probably a globalist. But he, he's giving us an example, and the words that he's saying is motivating the people in Ukraine. Now, I've seen a couple of videos of people that have posted. Uh, one woman, she was uh, in business in Ukraine, and she was talking about how the temperature is about 6 degrees Celsius, which is in the low 40s. At night, it gets below freezing. There is no power. There is no water. She hasn't had a shower in 12 days. 
And she just wanted to put a testimony out there in case she doesn't survive. She doesn't know if her father's alive. She didn't know if her sister's alive. And it's just sad to see that. And she's bringing words that will influence those on the outside. Patty just told me about a uh, news story this morning that she was made aware of. that There was apparently a video being made on an airport tarmac where they had bodies in body bags. There was one problem with the video because the f- apparently one of the first body bags that was in the field of the view of the camera, it was moving on the inside. And apparently the guy was trying to cover himself more over with the body bag that was in the body bag or maybe he was being resurrected or resuscitated. I have no idea what's going on. But come to find out, the video that was being shown was 10 years old. It was not even from now, and that was in the mainstream media. Apparently, it's going viral. Because they know the effect that those words and those pictures will have. And I believe that is being done by the mainstream media, or it's possible, because there are people who say, we need to get into the war. We need to have a no-fly zone. And if we do that, we're going to war. We're going to be at war with Russia, and that's not a good thing. So there's an element of people that are pushing in that direction. It's like, let's start World War III. And they're doing it with words that are being spoken. (coughs) The words are able to seduce, to build up, or break down. Proverbs 2.16, it will save you also from the adulteress, the wayward wife with her seductive words. A woman has the power over a man, especially the young men. They can be so easily deceived, just put a hook in their jaw and just pull them along. That's all the young woman has to do. Uh, Proverbs 14.1 says, The wise woman builds her house, but with her own hands, the foolish one tears her, hers down. Now, it's not really saying that she grabs with her hands the building and starts pulling the building down. There's some metaphor being used here. What is being taught to us is that the woman, by her determination, can destroy her own household specifically by what she says. We know that Proverbs 21, verse 9, buttresses this, better to live in the corner of a roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. You know, there is this meme that is out there, and I feel sorry for anybody named Karen or Kate, but you, you know the meme, you've seen it, and I've seen just some ridiculous reactions of, I can only term it like that by some women, and how they go to the nth degree to see that they are being maligned and mistreated, and they're falling on the ground, and they're yelling, and the person with the camera is just standing there. It's like, what? why are you acting like this? Now, uh, on the other side, not quite as common are the Kens. You have the Kens and you have the Karens, and they're always complaining. They're always trying to influence others by the words that they speak and the actions that they have. And when it comes to a quarrelsome wife, she is always fighting with her words. Now, she can throw a few punches and things like that. By the way, I'm going to say a little parenthetical thought on that. I like to listen to different things and get different insights. And Justin or uh, Jordan Peterson, you know him. He was uh, talking about the rules of engagement for men. When we talk with each other, the way that it goes is conversation gets heated, go back and forth, stick your face in the face of the other one, throw your hands up in the air, and you keep on going back and forth. And eventually, where does it end up? Fisticuffs. That's where it goes, violence. That's man-on-man conversation. If a man gets in an argument with a woman, that is off-limits. You cannot do that. Now, speak a moment about the next generation coming up. But that is off-limits. For any man, no matter what the woman says, if he becomes violent and hurts her in any way, I'm sorry, it's game over, you're locked up, you're going to jail. That's just the way it is. Now, how do women do it? Sometimes they get in a fight, but usually it's just ruin the character of the other woman. Say things, gossip about her, that type of thing. That's just the norm. That's how human beings are. I have seen videos of this generation coming up 
where the girls think that they can just beat somebody up because they see it in the movies, they see it in the television sitcoms, whatever it is. And they just start throwing fisticuffs. And the young men, they don't take it. They just haul right off and they'll deck the women that are out there. And that's where the the conversation, that is where the the culture is going in that direction where there is violence in the land. By the way, that is in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. There is violence in the land everywhere. And so that is changing. But the words that are being spoken, it gets a reaction. If the young lady starts cussing and belittling a young man and then starts throwing fists, well, it's not going to go well for her. But these things are changing. Jordan Peterson went on to say, a woman who is like this, and he went a step farther and says, if she's crazy, you cannot deal with that. There's nothing you can do about that. The man will just walk away. He'll just say, I'm done. And that is Proverbs 21 verse 9. Better to live in the corner of a roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. The man will just say, I'm done because of that uh, societal norm, that cultural norm. You cannot engage in fisticuffs like with man to man. And men, they usually run out of words, and that's why it goes to the point of fisticuffs. Women, they never run out of words. It just it keeps on going. So words are able to seduce, build up, or break down. For a man, the words of a woman can be so tedious that they want to be anywhere else than in her presence. And the converse is true. The woman can have such words that he doesn't want to be anywhere else except in her presence because he gets respect from her. He, he gets nurtured, so to speak, from her, and it's all good. So both can take place, but we just need to know that words are able to build up or break down. Then there's the testimonies that we have. You know, it's a spoken word about what the Lord has done. Or in a court of law, if you have a testimony that is given, it can bring conviction, punishment, or exoneration, or liberation. No matter what is said in there, the conviction is either going to happen or it's not going to take place based on the words, normally, of two or three people or the circumstantial evidence that is there. And spiritually speaking, it can bring conviction, the words that we speak, condemnation, it can bring repentance that leads to salvation. The words that we speak do that. Our words have power. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6 says, Because of our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. In other words, the things that we told you about Christ, it was confirmed in you. And now look at you. You are following Christ. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10 talks three different times about the testimony or the spoken word that we have about Christ. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe, God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given him about his Son. And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. And so it's the word of the testimony that we bring. These words are powerful. You can give the gospel and somebody goes to heaven if they simply believe just by what you say. So it's incredible the power that we have with the words that we speak. And then there is a spark of interest in, in, I know Patty really likes this, the true stories that are put into film. You know, there are several of them that have come out in the last few years and, and they're great movies and it speaks of the things that people do and the words that they say in order to accomplish great feats. We just watched one, it was uh, after World War II where Russia came in and took over several countries and they made gulags up in Siberia and it was about a story of four men who traveled, is it uh, 4,000 miles to get away from the Russians. And they went to Mongolia and, and to China, and it was just a difficult trek for them. And their testimony of what they went through, it was powerful. And one of the guys in there, he said, I have to go back. And he was talking about going back to see his wife and let her know because his wife kind of turned him in, and she had to do it because she was coerced to do it. And she would carry that guilt for the rest of his life. And so he felt he had to go back and see her. And it shows him going through the door when he's young. And then all of a sudden he becomes old. And it shows his wife when she is young sitting in the house. And she becomes old. And he shows up and sees her when he is old to relieve her of the guilt that she has carried for her whole life. 
and those that comes by words spoken. And so we, we can relieve tremendous burdens and guilt and, and issues in life just by what we say. And that's what the Lord would call us to do. Then there is the Holy Spirit. Remember, there's words, power, Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. Well, God can accomplish anything according to his will, will with a yielded spirit in a man who is submitted to him or a woman who is submitted to him. Like, for instance, creation. <clears throat> if you look at creation, and I have done this. I've, I've sat down. I, I think I've told you I've had astronomy, and I was like geology, and I'm just fascinated by some of the things that are out there. And God determined, God the Father, he determined that things would be created. The Son spoke it into existence, and the Spirit moved upon the face of the waters. And so the Spirit was doing the creating, Jesus spoke it into existence, and that's how it happened. Now, have you ever thought about the universe in which we live? Like, for instance, do you feel like you're going fast right now? Do you feel like you're stationary? Well, I want to let you know that we're traveling on this earth at 1,000 miles an hour. How does that feel? Is your face going back because you're going so fast in the rotation of the earth? You don't feel anything, do you? But we're traveling at 1,000 miles an hour. And God determined that the earth would be spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. And we're just going around the sun doing that. Well, what about how fast are we moving through our solar system? Or how fast is our solar system moving through space, I should say? 515,000 miles an hour. Do you feel that? Are you, are you thrown back in your chair now? Because first it's a thousand miles an hour rotating in the earth. And then our solar system is going through our galaxy, spinning through our galaxy at 550,000 miles an hour. Do you, do you feel that? Do you get that? And God created that. And we feel nothing here. Well, what about the Milky Way galaxy? It is traveling through space. Do you know how fast that's traveling? 1,300,000 miles per hour. Or in other words, in one second, you will travel 361 miles. One. 361 miles. Put that together with 1,000 miles per hour, the earth spinning, 550,000 miles an hour going through uh, our galaxy spinning around. And we don't feel any of that. And God determined that's how it would be. You know, they, they do calculations of how the universe was created and i was talking to the youth about this you guys know how many stars there are in our galaxy right there are more stars in our galaxy than there are grains of sand on the earth how many grains of sand on the earth are it's innumerable that's just in our galaxy how many galaxies are there there are more galaxies in our universe than there are grains of sand on the earth how many is that it's innumerable it's how far out there you know they got this new uh uh, James Webb telescope out there and they're so excited they can see things they're still not going to get to the end for all intents and purposes it is infinite you cannot see the end of the universe there's no way if you could you could see the effects of creation how fast were, were all those stars thrown out there multiple times the speed of light how is that possible there's physics behind it I would go into that but God did this he just said there it is it's out there and you're spinning at a million miles an hour going through the universe. It's like, this is incredible. And we feel nothing. We're just ho-hum. Okay, we're okay. And God did this for us by the Holy Spirit. That's how powerful the Holy Spirit is. And he lives inside of us. What can he do through you? Anything that he wants to as long as you're willing. Like, for instance, Samson. He had such physical power. He killed a thousand men. Now, I don't know about you, but any warrior today, if he just had a jawbone in his hand, there's no way he's going to kill a thousand men. No way. If somebody gets to ten men, they're like Goliath. But a thousand men, and that was the Holy Spirit working through Samson, and that was in Judges fifteen 15. I'll read it to you. Finding a jawbone, a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Just incredible what the Holy Spirit did through him. Or how about when Peter was filled with the Spirit and he spoke 3,000 people got saved in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. And it was the Spirit doing it. 
And this is how Paul came to the people, not just with words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit and with this one, deep conviction. Now, you might think you know what deep conviction is, but there is this guy. His name is David C. Gibbs, Jr. He is a Christian, has a Christian law association in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And he explains the differences between a conviction and a preference according to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, a preference, and I'll read it to you here. A preference is a very strong belief held with great strength. You have a preference. You can give your entire life in a full-time way to the service of a preference and can also give your entire material wealth in the name of the belief. You can also energetically proselytize others to your preference. You can also want to teach this belief to your children and the Supreme Court may still rule that it is a preference. A preference is a strong belief but a belief that you will change under the right circumstances. Circumstances such as peer pressure. If your beliefs are such that other people stand with you before you will stand, your beliefs are preferences, not convictions. This is kind of interesting. How about family pressure? How many in your family have ever pressured you on some issue or you've pressured them? If it changes, it's a preference. It's not a conviction. How about lawsuits? Lawsuits can change your preferences, your firmly held beliefs, where you will not, or you will not continue in the vein that you are. Another thing that will change your preferences is jail. Go to jail. Now, I've, I've gone to prison. I wasn't an inmate, but I've gone to the prison down in uh, Donovan over there. It's a rough place. I, you know, I, I would never want to be in that place. I've, I've seen this group of videos. This guy, he was in prison. And he's giving tips. Like, if you're going to prison, this is what you want to do. This is what you don't want to do. And I've watched it probably an hour or so just listening to the guy about what you can expect inside prison depending on the level of prison that you're in. And he was hardcore he was in there, and jail can change your preference. I mean, pretty quickly. And then how about the threat of death? Would you die for your beliefs, your preferences? Probably not. That's why it's a preference. <clears throat> Peter, did he have a preference before or right when Jesus was crucified? Or was it a conviction? And then after Jesus resurrected, did he have a preference Or did he add a conviction? Well, a conviction is a belief that you will not change. Now, why? A man believes that his God requires it of him. That's a conviction. Preferences aren't protected by the Constitution. Convictions are. A conviction is not something that you discover. It is something that you purpose in your heart. Daniel, remember Daniel didn't want to eat the vegetables? He had purposed in his heart. It was his conviction. Convictions on the inside will always show up on the outside in a person's lifestyle, and to violate a conviction would be a sin. In other words, for a conviction, you will die. You will not change it under any circumstances. It is what it is, and it's not mutable. It will not change. It is immutable. Now, take that, the conviction. This is how Paul came with great conviction. In other words, he was willing to die. He was not going to change his preferences. Take contemporary issues that you have. Are they convictions or are they preferences? Now, let's go to the heart of some of these, like abortion and homosexuality. Would you change your conviction if they were going to kill you because of your deeply held belief? If you would recant, that's not a conviction. It's a preference. It's something that you hold to. Well, let's get a little more recent. What about a vaccine? 
If somebody required you, demanded that you get the vaccine or lose your life basically through starvation because you can't buy or sell unless you have the vaccine, you can't travel, you can't do anything unless you have the vaccine. Are you going to get the vaccine to preserve your life? Remember, 61,000 people, according to the CDC, have died because of a direct result of getting the vaccine. Now, they've kind of buried that, but that's one of the statistics that are out there. What about masks? Now, I hate wearing masks. I despise it. My daughter hates it, too. She made uh, sweatshirts for all of us that said, let me live and it had to do with the mask and wearing a bright red with white lettering on it. And we all put them on, took a picture. You know, we, we don't like the masks. But if somebody says, you have to put on the mask, you know, I, I've stopped people and I said, do you really think that the mask prevents you from getting COVID? And they say, well, it's a mandate. You know, it's snarky. And, and I just, okay. So I had a preference. I didn't have a conviction. I put the mask on, all right, oh, I have to deal with this, it's just kind of annoying. But there are still people out there who have this idea about masks. Well, what about, what about guns? If you have a gun, now I, I've heard people that have been in this church say, there's no way they're taking this gun from my hand unless it's cold. That's the only way they're taking it from me. That's a conviction if that's what somebody believes because they believe the constitution is the highest form of law in the United States and they have the right to do that and nobody including the military or the government is allowed to take it away then there's other people who have preferences so no if it means I can't kill somebody or be killed then I'm going to give it up that's a preference well, what about your Christian faith are you willing to die for your Christian faith <clears throat> I think it was Polycarp who was on the stake that was burning there he said he didn't need to be tied down and he he stood there and burned alive because of his faith, his conviction. Or Christian doctrine. You know, the people throughout history have died, been killed because of doctrine that they held. Martin Luther was one of them that they tried to kill. They were not successful, but they tried to do that. You know, uh, John Wycliffe was killed because he created another version of the Bible in one that the people could read. He, he was killed. And so are you having a conviction or are you having a preference? <clears throat> well, what about the gospel? Would you be willing to die for the gospel? Paul was. That was his conviction. So it, it makes us ask the question, what are your convictions and what are your preferences? What are you willing to die for and will not change? And what are you willing to change? Some people say, well, you can't die on this hill. That's a ridiculous hill to die on, and that's why we have preferences. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, I dare say those who are truly believers will die even though they would have you recant your faith. So those are the contemporary issues which are there. Now, there are powerful testimonies about the Holy Spirit working in people who maintain deep convictions. And those people are listed in Hebrews 11, 35 through 40. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us that only together with us would they be made perfect. And so these people were people of conviction. You have to ask yourself in, these day and age, uh, in this day and age, what kind of convictions do you have and will you maintain now, going on with this in verse 5, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction or much conviction, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So they also had this conviction. They endured uh, the suffering. And so you become a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 
The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So there is a progression in this cycle. An example is set. Imitators follow. Joy was the fruit. It was a model for others. And reports from others became positive. That's what it should be with us as well. Somebody set an example for us. Like, recall, how did you get saved? Did somebody give you the gospel in person? Did they invite you to church? Is that what happened? I got saved by listening to a guy on a radio all alone. And he's going to get the reward for that. He's going to get the crown. And he set an example for me. But also others that I listened to on the radio at the time. Radio was instrumental for me getting saved. And I decided, well, I want to be like that. I want to follow that example. Several Bible teachers, they set examples for years that I listened to. And then when I started following God, just like you, when you start following Jesus Christ, there's this joy that comes in because you're following him. And then the testimony of what you do will be told by others. And others who you do not suspect will bring praise to God or they will also decide to follow God. That's how it's supposed to work. We set the example. And that's what Paul is saying they did here in the church of Thessalonica. In verse 10, oh, before I go to verse 10, Ephesians 5.15 says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And then verse 10, and to wait for the Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now this was written 2,000 years ago. And the wrath is still coming. Some people say, no, it's not going to be here. And why is God's wrath coming? We know that in Colossians chapter 3, it's because of the immorality that is here. God says his wrath is coming. That's the reason. And you can lump everything into that. You can lump in there the disregard for God, the murder, the sexual immorality, all of that. The works of the flesh, God is coming to judge sin and those who will not repent. Now, this wrath is synonymous with punishment. Several times this has taken place in Scripture, but there will be a final wrath that is to come. We're going through the book of Revelation with the youth over there, and we just got through chapter 4, and we're going to go into chapter 5, and the wrath of God is being developed there and why it's coming. And it's an incredible thing to see the world history where we are now line up and point us in the direction that it seems to be closer than it ever was just because of what's taking place in the world. You know, as I said, I think it was last week or the week before, what world leader is there now who's pointing the way that we should go that would benefit all of us? There's really not one. Zelensky has had the heroic stand that he's taken, but it's still the globalist mentality, one world government, that's what the Antichrist wants, and that's where we're going. The getting the mark of the beast that we might buy ourselves that you know starts with the vaccine and it just kind of goes in that direction you have to have the passport in, in order to go anywhere you have to show proof that you've had the vaccination when i went to uganda i had to show proof that i had the yellow fever vaccination i couldn't get into uganda without it if i didn't have it they would have sent me back and so this is coming. And what about the the digital currency which is out there? How do you control people, what they can buy or sell, unless it's all electronic? You can't. The days of uh, doing things, barter system or cash, they are going away. They want to control every single transaction that you do so that you can earn social credits or they can penalize you and cut off your bank account if you don't do exactly what they want. Vis a vis Canada, looking up every single person who gave money to the truckers. They seized their bank accounts, is what they did. They seized their trucks, is what they did. I mean, it, it is right here. It's just leading up. This is the precursor. It's leading up. How far in the future will it be before this takes place? I don't know. It seems like it could be soon. And so, for us, the application of all this is first. How do we get saved? For us who are saved, it doesn't matter 
we are saved. Are we to look into it? Yes, look into how the process works so that it might affect or affect the way that we treat others and bring to them salvation. We have understanding. We have the knowledge of what the testimonies have been in the past and what our own testimony is so that we can bring people to salvation. So that's the first thing. And then we are both to uh, follow or understand what Paul did, but also understand that he came with words. He came with power, the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And we're to develop those convictions. And if we do, the Lord will use that. The fewer convictions we have, well, the more preferences we have. And the more we're willing to change and just kind of go to the left or to the right. I know of parents who have bought fully into uh, their children's gay lifestyle and are supporting it and complimenting it and posting. And, and I think that that is the wrong thing to do. I think we can love and we can honor God in our love towards those who have gone that way, but we do not have to express approval. We can simply say, no, this is wrong. God will judge all wrong, all sin, but I still love you and I would still die for you. And that's what we're supposed to do. So we, we don't just say, sinner, I want nothing to do with you. There are cases with people in the church that you do that with, but certainly people outside the church know. We're to love them and even give our lives for them if necessary. So my prayer for all of you and for myself is that we would have the words that God would give us and they would go out in power by the power of the Holy Spirit for salvation to others and we would have these convictions ready to go. We know what we believe and we stand by it. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word and the Apostle Paul and his convictions, how he actually died, was beheaded because he believed in you. He believed in the power of the gospel. He was willing to sacrifice his own life for that. May we have that same determination and endurance and perseverance. Again, as the days grow evil, we don't know what lies ahead. We don't know what the plans are of the evil one, but we know what your plans are, your plans for salvation, your plans for eternal life, and we'll just stay in that hope. In Jesus' name, and the church said, please stand.